name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <clears throat> the 4th of July does not often fall on a Sunday, but when it does, it's instructive for us about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. For while the prayer book provides a collect and lessons for Independence Day, the feast has no standing in the tables of precedence that determine the hierarchy of feasts. In practical terms, this means that the fifth Sunday after Trinity takes precedence over Independence Day. In fact, Independence Day was not even a feast day in the American Book of Common Prayer until 1928. The first American Anglicans opposed its adoption as a celebration because, as William White, Bishop of Pennsylvania at the time, wrote, he could, quote, never hear of it being kept in above two or three places beyond Philadelphia. Remember, the Revolutionary War was, in some respects, a rebellion against the tyranny of our church at the time and not a lot of colonial Anglicans were in favor of it. This in no way speaks against our gratitude for the freedoms we enjoy in America or our commitment and duty to be good citizens, but it does speak about the relationship between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. The church exists in most of the 193 countries in the world, the Anglican Church exists in 165 of them. The Anglican Catholic Church and its G4 partners exist in several dozen countries. And when we gather around the alt, we gather as citizens of the kingdom of God, in which all acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all creation. And we focus on that to which all the citizens of heaven can say, Amen. The Bible teaches us that citizens of the kingdom of God should be the best citizens of the earthly kingdom. As 1 Peter chapter 2 says, quote, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. The one exception to this obedience is when a government forbids its citizens to worship or demands worship for itself the worship that is due to God alone. Thus, when Caesar forbade the worship of the one true God and demanded worship for himself, the early Christians disobeyed. And this is the reason many became what we call martyrs. And today, many Christians in other countries die, continue to die, because they refuse to renounce their commitment to Jesus as Lord. It is instructive that the Greek word that comes into English as the word martyr really means witness. Thus, when Jesus told the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be witnesses unto me in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the Greek says literally, you shall be martyrs to me. Sometimes being witnesses meant dying for Jesus, and that is what association came into our language. 
And sometimes being witnesses meant simply being faithful to Jesus through the ordinary trials of life. In any event, the preeminent value was always witness. The citizens of the heavenly country are called to be witnesses, faithful witnesses to Christ in the earthly country. The temptation and danger is to get this backward and to reverse the priority. This reversal takes place when the earthly kingdom becomes a priority and the kingdom of God is seen as being in service to or useful for or the means of some temporal end. And this reversal is the root of political and moral compromise. Compromise happens politically when Christians become content to be a mere voting block that contributes to someone else's worldly agenda. It happens morally when the satisfaction of some desire in the world becomes more important than faithful witness. Thus we adjust the commandments of Jesus to serve the satisfaction of the temporal desire. Compromise always leaves us discontented and distant from God. For the world's agendas never accomplish their utopian promises. In fact, they often fail to accomplish anything they promise. And the thing we pursued at the expense of faithfulness never brings the promised satisfaction. So there we are, naked, ashamed, afraid, and hiding from God behind the bush. The political danger results when we mistake this world, including America, for the kingdom of God. And this leads us to view the mission of the church primarily as turning this world into the kingdom of God, or even just making this world a better place. This reduces the church to an activist or helping organization whose ministry is assessed only by the change it accomplishes or by how many people it helps in the world. And this breeds the naive utopian vision that if we work hard enough, we can bring about the advent of the kingdom or even just bring about some lesser vision for a unified world. See the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The naive utopianism is the belief that some new system or program or leader will be able to fix the world. We have been offered many utopian visions over the last couple of hundred years and most have resulted in grave human tragedy. The Bible teaches us that this world is not perfectible apart from the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to complete the work of new creation that he began in his life and on the cross. The kingdom of God is now present through the Holy Spirit in the church, in the world but it will not be fully present throughout the world. The kingdom will not be fully here until our Lord comes.
We wait for his coming like expectant mothers waiting for the birth of a child, as Romans 8.22 says. The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The utopian vision of the world ignores or avoids the reality of sin that is in every human heart. It pretends that the problems of the world are all out there in the system, the structure, the leader, or other people. But every problem that is out there also exists in here, in each of our hearts. This is the lesson that Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously learned in the Gulag. And this is why our own attempts to do good in the world must be deeply rooted in our own continual repentance. These errors are highlighted by the hot topic of justice. Almost all of the current discussions about justice miss the first and great biblical point of justice. Jesus summarized the law of justice by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Justice means giving a person the honor that he or she is due. The preeminent demand of justice is that we give the God who created us the worship he is due. Apart from the worship of God, we cannot even begin to rightly love those who are made in his image. When we skip the first commandment and try to keep the second, we end up with man-made and tribal ideas of justice that fall short of God's call for a universal love for all people who are made in his image. The preeminent duty of justice is expressed by St. Paul in Philippians, where where he writes, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We begin our lives in Christ at the altar of God on the Lord's day by worshiping the Father through the Son in the Spirit. This is the first and foremost duty of justice. Only after we fulfill the first and great commandment can we begin to fulfill the second and be faithful witnesses to the justice of God in the world. Thus, as we celebrate the fifth Sunday after Trinity and commemorate Independence Day, we give great thanks for the freedoms we enjoy in this country 
and for the great sacrifices so many have made to sustain that freedom. But we never confuse the temporal kingdom with the kingdom of God. And we keep our eyes fixed on our authentic hope. As Philippians says, quote, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, by the working by which he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.